Take your Bibles, please, and turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to finish up, Lord willing, uh, our, our exposition of the first 11 verses, which started out as a one-part message and then became a two-part message, and here we are finishing up part three. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the title, of course, is Written for Our Admonition. Written for Our Admonition. I'm going to read the verses that we're going to consider today, which is verses 9 through 11. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 9 through 11, these are the words of God. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured, and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all of these things, now all these things happened unto them for in samples. They are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. Jerry Bridges was a well-known Christian author who passed away seven years ago. One of the books that Jerry Bridges wrote was entitled Respectable Sins. Bridges' argument was not that there are any sins that are actually respectable, but that there are sins that we, in our unbiblical thinking, wrongly view as respectable. This is why he subtitled that book, Confronting the Sins That We Tolerate. The category of respectable sins is a category that stems from worldly opinion and not the teachings of the Word of God. All sin is an affront to the holy character and righteous law of God. And in the eyes of God, no sin is respectable. Your prayer and desire should be that God would allow you to see sin the way He sees sin. But it's far too easy to hate the sins of others And it's easy to sound so bold and so zealous when we preach against sins that other people are guilty of. But true boldness comes when we begin to confront the sins that we are guilty of. When we begin to confront the sins that we commit. When we begin to confront the sins that are present in our church. So may the Lord cause us, through His Word, to see the hidden evils of our own hearts and to give us a hatred for our own sins above all others. Now I mentioned this category of respectable sins because it's a concept that the text before us absolutely obliterates. All of us, whether we realize it or not, view some sins as more respectable than others. All of us do that. I'll prove it to you. Because some of you looked at 1 Corinthians 10... And you you looked at the text and you said to yourself, I sure am glad that we're past verses 7 and 8. Because verses 7 and 8 dealt with the awful and heinous sins of idolatry and sexual morality. And a sermon on idolatry and sexual immorality is a hard sermon and a convicting sermon. And I'm glad that we're past that. And then you looked at chapter 10 and you said, well, this sermon... Surely this sermon will be a lot easier because this sermon is, is about tempting Christ and, and complaining and murmuring. And uh, those sins, well, they're bad sins, but they're not 
as bad as idolatry and sexual immorality. They're respectable sins. Now, you might not have said that verbatim and explicitly, but if you're honest with yourselves, and I'm, I was honest with myself looking at this list, it seems as if the latter half is just not quite as bad as the former half. If someone in the church is living in open idolatry, that would be shameful. That would be scandalous. We would deal with it. But if a member of the church habitually complains about everything, we don't think much about it because it's a respectable sin. Well, the problem with this thinking, though, is that all four of these sins are in the same list. The Word of God makes no distinction between the wickedness of these four sins. All of them are heinous crimes against the law of God. All of them brought destruction on the people of God, and all of them still do bring destruction on the people of God. All of them are listed together. All four of them brought condemnation upon Israel. And all of these falsely so-called respectable sins will destroy the church if we allow them to take root. Tempters of Christ are just as troublesome in the church as idolaters. Complainers wreak just as much havoc in the church as fornicators and adulterers. So if you thought, well, last week was really rough, but you're looking forward to this week because you thought it would be oh so much easier. Well, I hate to disappoint you, but the latter half of this verse is just as abominable in the eyes of God. The latter half of this list is just abominable in the eyes of God as the first half. So let's finish this section of 1 Corinthians 10 and we'll consider these sins for what they are and conclude with the remedy for them as they manifest themselves in our own hearts and lives. So we've been on the same point of this outline because I gave you an outline for the first 11 verses and we've been on the same point now for two weeks, and we're going to finish that point. That point is point four, the specific references. Paul gives specific references uh, of sins. Look, look very quickly for context's sake. Look at verse 6. Notice in verse 6 he says, Now these things were written for our examples to the intent we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. The question is, what evil things, Paul? What evil things? And so he gives some specific references in verses 7 through 10 that enunciate and illustrate exactly what he's talking about. The first two we've already looked at, the sins of idolatry and sexual immorality. And now we come to number three and number four. And as we did last week, we'll look at the specific sin, Israel's committing of this sin, the Corinthians' committing of this sin, and what we are to learn from these examples. So number three, in verse nine, we see the sin of tempting Christ tempting Christ. Paul says in verse 9, Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted. Some of them also tempted. The Apostle Paul is such a phenomenal teacher of how to read the Old Testament. Many of us read our Old Testaments and we see a bunch of detached Stories about Jews who lived 4,000 years ago and we, we struggle to make sense of them and understand how they apply to our lives. But do you know what Paul saw when he read the Old Testament? Paul saw Christ. Right. 
in the Old Testament. And he saw lessons on how we are to live the Christian life. The Old Testament is a Christian book. It's a Christian book. And the incident that Paul is referring to here is found in Numbers chapter 21. And I'm going to ask you to hold your place in 1 Corinthians and turn to Numbers 21. Say, when did Israel tempt Christ in the wilderness? Well, Numbers 21, and here's how we know, by the way, uh, here's how we know the specific reference that Paul is quoting in 1 Corinthians 10, because he, he not only gives the reference of the sin, but he, he lists the penalty. He lists the penalty. Remember, what was the penalty for the sins of idolatry and sexual morality? Well, he, he cited specific periods where a plague wiped out thousands of people in Israel and where the Levites uh, wiped out the idolaters, right? Uh, so that's how we know the specific reference that Paul is quoting. And so we find here that Paul says they, they tempted Christ in the wilderness and by virtue of the, the penalty for that, we know he's referring to something that took place in Numbers 21. Uh, look at Numbers 21 and look at verse 4. Uh, Israel has has come through the exodus, and they're now in the wilderness. And verse 4 says, And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Eden, Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. The ESV just literally says there, the people became impatient. They became impatient. They were asking, Moses, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Stop and think about that for a moment. These people who witnessed the ten plagues in Egypt. uh, These people who experienced the miracle of the parting of the Red Sea. uh, These people who escaped Egypt in the Exodus. uh, These people who drank water out of a rock and ate bread that fell from heaven in the middle of a desert. These people for whom God had done so much had the audacity to become impatient. Verse 5 of Numbers 21. Notice they say, The people spake against God and against Moses. This is what they said, Wherefore have ye brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? And the sarcasm in me wants to imagine Moses saying something like, Yeah, that's exactly what I've done. Uh, brought you out of Egypt, delivered you from Pharaoh's army, parted the Red Sea, fed you and nourished you so that you could just die in the wilderness. They said, For there is no bread. Well, that's a lie. (laughs) Neither is there any water. Another lie. How, How childish is this right here? Because here's what we do, you know, uh, a child comes home and they're hungry and they, they open up the fridge and they, there's, there's all kinds of food in the fridge, but there's not what they want in the fridge. So they say, mom and dad, there's no food. Mm-hmm. And they admit it. Look at verse five. Just, this should really just break your heart. I mean, there's a sense in which it's comical, but if you really consider what they're saying, oh, Our soul loatheth 
this light bread. Light bread there is is kind of a confusing older translation. Really, what they're saying is, we hate this worthless bread that you've given us. They're in the wilderness being by the singular care and providence of God sustained at every step of the way. He's meeting all of their needs. He's guiding them by a cloud and by fire. He's manifesting His glory to them. He's making them His own special people. And they said, God, all of your blessings and all of your provisions, we hate them. They're worthless. Our self-righteousness sees that and quickly condemns Israel in the wilderness. And we say, we say, how could they act that way? We say, if, well, if God had done all of those things for me, I certainly wouldn't have been so impatient and unthankful for them. Really? Well, let me submit to you that God has done things for you that exceed even what he's done for Israel. He's given you a complete Bible, something Israel did not have in the wilderness. He's given you membership in the local New Testament church, something Israel did not have in the wilderness. He's given you a greater ministry of the Holy Spirit. The cloud that guided them by day is in you, indwelling you, and filling you, and guiding you. He's given you a new covenant perspective on Jesus Christ and the cross of Calvary. Something Israel only understood in types and shadows and promises. (coughs) Last time I checked, none of you had to wait on bread to fall from the sky. You just go to the fridge when you're ready to eat. Have any of you spent 40 years wandering around in the wilderness, the desert? No, we sit here in our lavish comfortable lives thinking we're so much better than Israel. Talking about what we would have done if we would have been there. We're so often just like them. We're so often just like them. God has redeemed us from sin. He's given us the hope of eternal life. He's promised us a heavenly inheritance. And yet the minute one little thing doesn't go the way we think it should... We hate this worthless bread. God, you've just, you've just brought me out here to die, haven't you? And if you think that that sin is not as bad as sexual immorality or idolatry, if you think that that sin does not deserve the wrath that fornication deserves, if you think that that sin is respectable, Perhaps you don't know very much about the character of God. Perhaps you don't know very much about your own sinful heart and what you really deserve. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that this attitude and this behavior is the sin of tempting Christ. Notice in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 9. Now if you have anything other than a 
than a King James or a New King James, you'll see it'll say, do not test Christ, which really is not as accurate of a translation. Do not test him. Do not put him to the test. The, the word that's, that's most accurate is the word to tempt. To tempt him. Malachi 3.10, you know, God tells us to try him or to prove him or to test him. And what he means by that is step out on faith, trust his promises, take him at his word, experience the faithfulness of God firsthand. That's what he means. And, and that's not what Paul's talking about in verse 9. There is a, a fine line between those two things. And the, the way that you know which side of the line you're on is the, the intentions of your heart. So what does it mean to tempt Christ? And what are the practical ways that this sin is committed? Well, let me suggest four ways that this sin is committed. I, I guarantee you that, that none of us have spent a whole lot of time pondering the nuances of what it means to tempt Christ. I hadn't before I studied this text. There are other ways in which this can be done, but these are the four predominant manifestations of the sin of tempting Christ. These four things were done by Israel, they were done by the Corinthians, and they're done by us. We are guilty of this sin. Number one, we tempt Christ when we demand that God prove himself in the way that we designate. Have you ever had a problem in your life? and you come up with a solution, and then you pray to God, and you do Him a favor by so kindly informing Him of your wonderful solution, because you know what's best. But then when God doesn't follow your genius idea, you become frustrated. God, you know things have been tight financially lately, and at the end of the month, I've got that evaluation coming up, and if I do well on the evaluation, I'm going to get that promotion, and that promotion would be a real blessing to my family. So God, this is what you need to do. Make it happen. And then when that evaluation comes, and you don't get the promotion, you just say, well, God, I guess you're just not going to provide for me. I guess you've just forgotten about me. You're not answering my prayers. What you fail to realize is that God was going to provide for you all along. He's just not bound to do it your way. Now, understand this. I'm not telling you to not pray specifically. Not at all. In fact, I think the Bible tells us that we are to pray specifically. Uh, general, general prayers, that's why I'm not a big fan of all of these. You know, I have an unspoken, pray for me. Okay, well, what can I pray for you about? If, you, if you're having financial struggles, rest assured the Lord knows, knows the amount to the cent. And there's nothing wrong with praying for the amount to the cent. There's nothing wrong for praying about specific things like promotions and opportunities. But don't think that your prayers somehow bind God to do it exactly the way you think He ought to do it. See, the, the flip side is true as well. Have any of you ever prayed for something specific that you thought would be a wonderful thing if God would do, but God in His grace did something even better? That hadn't even crossed your mind. You hadn't even thought about it. We need to pray, but we need to trust the Lord 
We need to cast... When you cast your cares on him, that, that, that implies that you let them go. You can't cast something and hold on to it at the same time. You cast your cares upon him. Lord, here's my burden. Here's my need. Here's my trouble. I'm giving it to you. And I'm trusting you to take care of it. And I'll pray specifically based upon the knowledge and the wisdom that you've given me as to some things that I've thought about and some things that I've considered, but ultimately I yield to your sovereign will. When we demand that God prove himself in the way that we designate, we tempt Christ. We put God in a box. Secondly, we tempt Christ when we doubt the goodness of God. When we doubt the goodness of God. This is often the result of committing number one. Things don't go the way we want them to go, and we blame God. Or worse, we become angry with God. Listen to me, it is never okay to be angry with God. Anger towards God reveals the discontent in your own heart and your unwillingness to yield to His sovereign good pleasure. Do you know what anger with God is? It is a manifestation of gross pride. Gross pride. You thought you knew better than God. And when He didn't do what you wanted Him to do, you got mad at Him. Or perhaps God did something that you didn't understand. And you couldn't make sense of it. And it angered you. Let me give you some big boy theology. God doesn't owe you an explanation for anything he does. He's God. You're not. This is really as simple as, do you believe the promises of God or don't you? God promises to work out all things together for the good of those who love him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that all the time? Do you believe that when life is going great and you're up on the mountain? Or do you also believe it when hard providence has come your way and you're down in the valley? (coughs) The goodness of God doesn't mean that all things in and of themselves are good. If you haven't learned this by now, I'll go ahead and let you in on a secret. Bad things happen to Christians. Sickness and financial hardship and the loss of a loved one. Those are not good things. Those are bad things. There's nothing wrong with saying, objectively, that's a bad thing. Murder and crime and abuse. Those are bad things. And they go on every day within the people of God and in the world. The question is, when those things happen, do we walk by faith and rejoice in the goodness of God in the midst of hard times? Or do we walk by sight and become bitter, frustrated, and angry with God? There was a man in the Bible who lost everything. He lost all of his wealth. He lost all of his possessions. He lost his own health. 
He lost all of his children. His wife said, curse God and die. His wife said, aren't you angry at God for doing all of this to you? Yet he said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Christian, don't doubt the goodness of God. Don't doubt the goodness of God. There is no quicker way for you to become miserable and bitter and frustrated than for you to doubt the goodness of God. He sent His Son to die for you on the cross. He said, How shall He not also freely give you all things? could you ever question His goodness towards you? He saved you from your sins and the wrath of hell. How could you ever be angry with Him? Perhaps some of you are angry with God and you don't even realize it. I would care to venture that, that there, though there might be, there's many of you who've never actually shaken your fist at heaven and said, God, I am angry with you. Something's happened. And it's caused you to lose your joy in the things of God. The things that used to bring you so much satisfaction, your Bible, prayer, fellowship with God's people, they've been slowly losing their appeal and you've been withdrawing yourself. Could it be that you have unconfessed anger in your heart towards God? When you're angry and you don't really know why? When you're mad but you really don't know who you're mad at? Could it be that subconsciously that anger is directed towards God? Because whether you want to admit it or not, in the back of your mind you feel as if He's withheld something from you that you you deserved or He hasn't done something for you that you thought would have been so wonderfully good or He's just not blessing you in the way that you thought He should be. And so you have anger in your heart towards God. Well, do not leave here with that anger. Because that anger is tempting Christ. That anger is tempting Christ. You need to repent of your sin. And you need to humble yourself under the goodness of God. It is never okay to harbor anger in your heart towards God. Third, we tempt Christ when we presume upon His grace to save us from foolish temptation. Did you get that? We tempt Christ when we presume upon His grace to save us from foolish temptation. The Bible tells us that we are to flee temptation, not flirt with it. But there are Christians who have this idea that they can walk right into the fiery inferno of temptation because God is bound to uphold them. Well, yes, God does uphold us. If you overcome any sin... If you overcome any temptation, it is because of God's perseverance within you. Absolutely. Yea and amen. But God upholds us 
Because he's gracious, not because he's obligated. Many of your wicked sins were not committed on the first try. What do I mean by that? Well, when you commit a sin that's very shameful, very egregious in nature, very open and reproachful, it is often after flirting with that sin and allowing yourself and opening up yourself to be tempted by that sin and yet God protected you and kept kept you from committing it. However, you persisted to open yourself up to temptation and you presumed upon God's grace and finally God said, that's it. If you want to keep flirting with that sin, then go ahead, commit it. No godly man ever woke up pursuing holiness, trying to commune with God, and found himself in the bed of another man's wife later that night. He didn't commit adultery on the first try. He committed it after allowing himself to be in compromising situations alone with a woman that he's not married to. He allowed his interactions with her to become too frequent and too familiar. He allowed himself to think about her in ways that he shouldn't have. And yet God continued to keep him from going deeper and deeper into his sinful desires. And praise God when he does that for us. And then he shows us what he's been doing for us. We rejoice. But as we persist and presume upon God's grace, finally God permits us to fall. God tells us in Romans 13 and verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the lust of the flesh. (coughs) Make no provision to fulfill its lust. God doesn't say, don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. He says, don't even make a provision. There's too many Christians that they want to make all the provisions, but yet... They, they comfort themselves by saying, well, I haven't actually done it. This means, what does it mean to, to make no provision? This means, if God has saved you from alcoholism, you don't go down to the bar and sit behind the counter and stare at all the liquor and tell yourself, oh, I'm a Christian now, I can handle it. Maybe you can, maybe you can't. That's not the point. The point is, the Bible says, don't make provisions. Don't make provisions to fulfill the lust of your flesh. When you do, you are tempting Christ. Christ has said, don't do this. And you say, okay, I'm not going to do it, but I'm going to get as close as I possibly can, and then I'm going to trust your grace to keep me from just taking that one step over the line. This means, if you know you struggle with temptation, don't go on the internet and play with vipers. But don't sit in front of a television screen with vipers on the screen. Lying to yourself all the while. Oh, it's going to be different this time. Well, I went to church on Sunday, and then I had prayer meeting on Wednesday, so I have the fortitude to... 
indulge in this and not, not succumb to the temptations of it. There has never, ever been a Christian who was sanctified to the point that they could totally overcome all of the lusts of the flesh. Amen. The Apostle Paul couldn't. Do I need to remind you what he said in Romans 7? The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I hate, I do them. Oh, wretched man that I am. He said that as the Apostle Paul, not as Saul of Tarsus, by the way. If you keep giving your flesh the same provisions, don't be surprised when you commit the same sins. If you're hanging out with all the same people that you, you used to hang out with when you lived that sinful lifestyle, and you're a Christian now, but you keep the same company, don't be surprised when you're struggling and wondering, why can't I change? Why can't I be holy? Paul Washer was once asked in a Q&A. They asked, they asked him a, a, about a, a story that he had previously told about a pastor who said no to his teenage son when he asked if he could go on a date alone with a young lady. The pastor said, no, you, you can't do that. I, you cannot go on a date alone with her. And the pastor was confronted and the, the, the confrontation was, well, what's wrong with you? You're a pastor. Your son is a godly young man. You've raised him right. Don't you trust him? And the pastor said, of course I don't trust him. I don't trust his father. Amen. <laughs> don't put any trust or confidence in your flesh. Amen. When you make provisions for your flesh and flirt with sin, and presume upon God's grace to keep you, you are guilty of tempting Christ. Right. You know, really, this, this sin, this, this sort of presumption is really no different. If you're, if you're sitting here and you're wondering, is this really as bad as I'm making it out to be? <clears throat> what would you say to somebody that says, I can sin all I want because I know God's going to forgive me. Well, I mean, Jesus died on the cross. You preacher, you preach it. You're saved from all your past sins, all your present sins, all your future sins. So therefore, it's the same logic. It's the same logic. Presuming upon God to forgive you, therefore you can sin as much as you want. It's the same logic as presuming on God to sustain you, therefore you can open yourself up to all sorts of temptation. Well, Paul certainly believed in the magnificency of grace to save us from all our sins. But he also said, what does this mean? Wherefore, should we sin that grace may abound? May yenito, God forbid, perish the thought don't even begin to think that way. If you do, you're tempting Christ. You're abusing grace. Mm -hmm. Fourthly and finally, we tempt Christ when we seek to live on the edge of God's principles. Similar to number three, but distinct. When we try to see how worldly we can become and still be a Christian, 
what an epidemic this is that plagues so many who profess Christ. And I know it's something that, especially in recent weeks, it's something that, that I have made a common theme. I believe it's something that's just near and dear to our church and something that we need to wrap our minds around. Listen, if you are trying to figure out how much like the world you can be while also being a Christian, it's probably because you aren't one. Christians who have the Spirit of God living within them, who are indwelt by the Holy Ghost, who have been saved by Jesus Christ on Calvary, who have a relationship with their Heavenly Father, they don't make their decisions and live their lives thinking, okay, how much of the world can I have and still be a Christian? How much can I indulge in and still be a Christian? You're like the Jews. When God says, don't exceed 40 stripes, and you say, okay, we're going to go to 39. Christian is someone who wants to glorify God with the way they live their lives. And sometimes we think that that's only true of the really spiritual Christians. And if I'm being very, let me be very pastoral for a moment. I think some of that thinking has even snuck into this church. And there's some of you who, who maybe are younger in the faith and you have this false dichotomy in your mind between really spiritual, mature Christians that have been Christians for a long time and younger Christians that haven't. And, well, yes, of course, we would expect somebody who's older and more mature in the faith, we'd expect them to want to live for the glory of God and to want to live lives that are pleasing to Jesus. We expect them to to read their Bibles and go to church and give. We expect them to do that, but I'm I'm just a new Christian. You can't expect me to... Well, no, we can't expect you to have the same maturity and the same gifts and the same level of godliness as someone who's been walking with the Lord for decades, but we do expect you to have the same desire. Desire to please Christ and to live for Christ. A Christian is someone who is compelled by God's love to him to live in a way that honors him. Christian is someone who searches the scriptures to find out how to please God, not someone who searches the scriptures to justify their behavior. Every time I see some article online that says, can I do blank and be a Christian? <laughs> and then what, the, what you proceed to find in the article is somebody who did a deep dive Bible study to justify some sin that they wanted to commit and indulge in. When you hear statements like, well, technically, the Bible doesn't explicitly say. And I think to myself, what kind of Christian wants to base their conduct off of questionable technicalities and live in such an uncertain gray area? You say, well, you're on the verge of legalism. (laughs) No, legalism would, would, would be making an emphatic statement about what the Bible does say. The Bible says you cannot do this when the Bible doesn't say you cannot do this. But when when we base our lives on uncertainties and we're thinking, well, you know, I, I really don't know if that's pleasing to God. I really don't know if it glorifies Him. I haven't stopped long enough to consider it. So uh, lest the Bible spoil my fun, I'm just going to do it and presume on His grace and tempt Christ. 
this isn't talking about areas that are truly part of Christian liberty. This is talking about situations when you have to fight your own conscience and convince yourself something is permissible before you do it. The Bible says whatsoever is not a faith is sin. And if, if there's a group of people that are off doing something and you're invited to participate and your conscience tells you not to do that and you have to sit there and you have to convince your conscience that it's okay so you can participate, it's probably something you shouldn't participate in. None of us are going to get to heaven and hear God say, you know, your problem was that you just cared about holiness a little too much. You just tried too hard to be godly. Your problem is that you just took the Bible too seriously. Perhaps there will be some of us who will look back on our lives at the last day and realize that we made little progress in godliness because we were so preoccupied with the things of this world. Don't cave in to worldly peer pressure. If you take the things of God seriously, yes, you're going to be called a Bible thumper. You'll be called a Jesus freak. If you're the only Christian in your family, get ready. It's coming. If you're the only Christian on the job site, be prepared. You're going to encounter it. Sadly, even amongst other believers that you may know, if you're going to really be zealous for the Lord, sometimes they're the ones who hate it the most. Amen. And if you could just make all the teasing go away, and if you'd just be a little less holy and just a little more like the world, you think, well, my life would be easier. But let me tell you something, friend. They called Jesus names that were a whole lot worse than anything they've ever called you. And Hebrews tells us that he despised the shame and endured the cross for the glory of his Father. Do you know why sinners mock you? Because... Your holiness condemns their guilty consciences. It's exactly why. When they see you living for God's glory and they see your joy in the Lord, they realize that you have something they don't have and it makes them very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And misery loves company. And so they tear you down. They try to bring you down to where they are so that they don't feel so bad about their own sins. That's why they killed Jesus. That's why they tease you. And when you seek to be a Christian, but you seek to be a Christian who wants to live like the world, to avoid that shame, you're tempting Christ and practically you're denying Him. Jesus said in Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you, Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you. Falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When you want to tone down your godliness around unbelievers or around carnal Christians to avoid the reproach, you're denying Christ. You are telling them, I am ashamed of what God has done in my life. Don't be ashamed of Jesus. 
don't tempt him. Say, yes, that is, that is the way I live. That is the way I dress. Uh, that is the way that I live my life. Yeah, that is what I watch or don't watch on TV. That's exactly right, and I'll tell you why. Because God has done a work of grace in my heart, and I no longer desire the things I used to desire, and I have new desires now. Live for Him before the eyes of an unbelieving world and let the earth see the glory of God in your life. Israel tempted Christ in all four of these ways. And so did the Corinthians. How did the Corinthians tempt Christ? They tempted Christ by saying, on Sunday we're going to come to church and we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper and on Monday we're going to go to the temple and eat an idol feast. And God says, that's tempting me. You're tempting Christ when you do that, when you try to live such a dual-faceted, compartmentalized life with your Christianity on one end and your worldliness on the other. Beloved, learn from the Jews, learn from the Corinthians, and don't follow them in their sin. Now I must hasten, lest this become a four-part message. Verse, verse 10, the fourth and final sin on this list, the sin of complaining. The sin of complaining. Paul says, Neither murmur ye, as some of them also murmured. Talk about a respectable sin. This is perhaps the most respectable of them all. Idolatry? Oh, that's awful. Sexual immorality? Wicked. Tempting Christ? Well, okay, we, we now can see that's a pretty bad sin. But complaining? Does that really belong on this list? The specific incident that Paul references is debated. It's unclear if he's referring to Numbers 14 or Numbers 16. Both of those incidents expose the evils of the sin of complaining. I want you to turn to Numbers 14. Numbers 14. And I will be quick so you don't have to complain. Numbers 14, notice what verses 1 and 2 say. And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt! If there was a championship for complaining, this would be a pretty good one right here. When people, when people start complaining, have you ever noticed, sometimes they just say the most ridiculous things. And you wonder, are you even listening to yourself? Would to God that we died in the land of Egypt? Or would to God that we died in this wilderness? Notice they complained against Moses and Aaron, but look at verse 27 of Numbers 14. God says, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation which murmur against me? What should we learn? You don't have to complain explicitly and directly about God to complain against God. 
Complaining against his provisions is complaining against him. Complaining against Moses or complaining against the man that God has given to be your leader is complaining against him. Complaining against the church is complaining against him. Complaining against his people is complaining against him. If we really understand the sovereignty of God, then we we must realize that all complaints are ultimately against him. A.W. Pink said, when we complain about the weather, we are in reality murmuring against God. People chuckle when I say this, you know, when it snows and I say, when I say, now I don't want to complain against the snow, but I have a hard time enjoying it and being thankful for the snow. And people kind of laugh at me, but I tell you what, I'm dead serious. I've been convicted about this. Because I don't like it. it, it it's, it's inconveniencing. It, it causes us to have to cancel evangelism and different things. But God's sovereign over the weather. I ought not complain. <laughs> and in Numbers 14, verses 28 through 30, you want to know how serious is this sin of complaining? The Bible tells us that it was this sin of complaining that prohibited the first generation of Israelites from inheriting the promised land. You're committing whoredoms with the women of Moab. God says, there's forgiveness for you. Come on to the promised land. You complain against me, you're going to die in the wilderness. That's it. Remember that next time you think that complaining isn't all that bad of a sin. This, this made me wonder, though. Back to 1 Corinthians 10. This made me wonder. Because I believe that God is a rational God. What is it about the sin of complaining that compels Paul to include it on this list and causes God to deem it as so reprehensible? And, and I don't know that I've got the emphatic answer, but you know something about the sin of complaining that makes it distinct from the other sins on this list? Complaining is contagiously toxic in a way that the other sins aren't. If somebody came into church on a Sunday morning and they brought a golden statue with them and they set it on the floor and they began to bow down to it, we would very quickly tell them, get that thing out of here and repent of your idolatry. This is the house of God. None of us would be too tempted to join them on the floor in their pagan worship. But if Brother Allen came to church on a Sunday morning and I said, hey, how's your week been? And he said, Ugh, this is terrible. My boss was a jerk. My co-worker was an idiot. My wife burnt my supper last night. I probably wouldn't say, brother, I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. Stop complaining. I'd probably say, you know what? Now that you mention it, my week was pretty bad too. (laughs) And before long, we'd both be a couple of miserable complainers. We'd have no joy. We'd have no love. We'd have no compassion. We'd have no thankfulness. We'd just be a bunch of miserable complainers. And it doesn't take long for that kind of spirit to run through an entire church. Why do you think there's so many churches in West Tennessee that can't keep a pastor longer than four months? They complain about everything. Every little thing he does. If we don't wage war on our complaining spirits, this sin will destroy us. Complaining will kill a church just as quick as blatant idolatry 
we wonder, why can't the church reach the younger generation? Why are I, I participated last month in a in a pastor's Zoom call? The subject of the Zoom call was how do we keep the young people in our church? Our young people are growing up and they're leaving. Well, when mom and dad go to church on Sunday morning and come home and eat the preacher for lunch, and they sit there and they complain about the sermon. He went too long. I didn't like the text he preached. It was boring. He's too loud. He's too quiet. Oh, and another thing. Man, that music. I didn't care for those hymns. I wish we'd sing this, or I wish we'd do that. Or, uh, did you see what so-and-so was wearing? Or, did you see what they said to me? You know, they're a really lousy church member. They should be more like us. And that's the usual conversation around the Sunday dinner table. And then they wonder why their kids don't love the church. And they wonder why their kids grow up and leave the faith altogether. Why would they want to be Christians if all they heard about it was mom and dad complaining? Complaining indicates a gross immaturity and a lack of holiness in our lives. Philippians 2 verses 14 through 15 says, Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Let me continue to be very pastoral. We all have our political opinions in this church and they're pretty much all the same. Be very careful the way you talk about politics, especially around your unbelieving friends. Be careful the way you talk about Joe Biden, the President of the United States that God has ordained to be there. Be careful the way you talk about him in front of your unbelieving friends, especially your un- unbelieving conservative Republican friends. What an opportunity it is to witness and share the gospel when our president does something that is very unrighteous and that is very wicked and it causes us as the people of God to be filled with righteous indignation. And when we're sitting around the coffee table at work and everybody's going on and on about how they just can't stand the president and they're using names, they're telling jokes and they don't see you join in on that, you you share in their concerns, they're going to ask you, well, what's wrong with you? Aren't you angry about this? Doesn't this bother you? And you're able to say, yes, it, it does bother me very much, but I realize that my complaining gets me nowhere. So instead, I pray that the God of all the earth would do right, that he would be just in this situation, and that he would even give grace to the President of the United States who desperately needs the saving grace of the gospel. (coughs) See, because the opposite is true as well. When you are full of complaints, you don't resemble a child of God, but when you do, you shine as a light in the world. That's what Philippians 2 says. Do all that you do without complaining that you may shine in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. That you may shine as lights in the world. At the end of the day, we complain because we want everything to go our way and we get frustrated when it doesn't. No one wakes up and says, you know, God, I really want to grow in my faith today, so I want you to make everything go wrong so I have an opportunity to be more mature. None of us prays that way. And and I'm not telling you to start. I I am telling you that you need to quit drinking your own bathwater and always thinking that our way is the best way. A complaining Calvinist is a schizophrenic. 
Don't tell me how reformed you are and how much you love the sovereignty of God if all you do is complain against His providence. Complaining is discontentment in God's sovereignty. If God wasn't sovereign over everything, complain all you want. But if you believe that He is, and we do around here, we better be careful. Yeah, there's a difference in expressing displeasure and expressing even anger and frustration, which can be very righteous emotions. There's a difference in that in complaining. I'm not saying that we're no longer allowed to recognize anything wrong in the world. Not at all. We need to be careful that we're not foolishly complaining and murmuring as they murmured in the wilderness. What's the remedy for these sins? Tempting Christ and complaining? It's, it's funny, you know, a lot of sermons, especially younger preachers that are just getting started out, they follow a really structured format where they give you, you know, three points and then application at the end. And uh, what they mean by application is typically something for you to do. Okay, here's the sins. Now, let me give you something to do. Notice in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul doesn't do that. Here's Paul's application. Stop it. That's what he says. He, he doesn't give you any kind of remedy. He just simply says, don't do it. Don't be an idolater. Don't be a complainer. I do believe that there are some practical remedies. Call them applications if you want to help us fight these sins in our lives. Number one, you need to realize what you truly deserve. We tempt Christ and we complain because we think we deserve way more than we actually do. Limitations 3.39 says, Of what can any living mortal or any man complain in view of his sins? When you realize that you deserve to die in your sleep last night and bust hell wide open, and that it was only by the grace of God that you didn't, you won't complain so much when somebody cuts you off in traffic. We need to realize what we truly deserve, which apart from the grace of God, is wrath. It's wrath. Secondly, trust the all-wise purposes of God, which are working together for your good. That boss of yours that makes your life so hard, he's there for a reason. God's put him in your life for a reason, for your own sanctification. That promotion that you prayed for and didn't get, there's a reason why you didn't get it. You may not see it, but it was for your good. That ailment that you've besought the Lord thrice to take from you and He hasn't, there's a reason why He hasn't, so that you might learn that His grace is sufficient for you. That crying baby, well, I've had to preach this one to myself. That crying baby, that frustrates you sometimes, inconveniences you, he's God's gift to you. He's in your life for a reason. Thank God. When we, when we trust the all-wise purposes of God, we're not so tempted to complain about everything. Thirdly, learn to cultivate thankfulness. Next time you're about to tempt Christ and you're about to complain and you're just about to spew it all out, I want you to stop and I want you to think about what it is you're complaining about and I want you to think of something to be thankful for instead. 
Oh, that boss of mine, at least you have a job. <laughs> you have a paycheck that allows you to put food on the table. Consider how good God has been to you. Amen. All that he's done. Sing the old children's song. Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. If you're tempted to just feel frustrated, the world's out to get you, you want to complain about everything, break out a piece of paper, click your pen, and start writing down the blessings of God in your life. I, I guarantee you, if you're a Christian, you're not going to get to the end of that page for your heart's just overwhelming with thankfulness. It's very hard to complain when your heart is full of thankfulness. Verse 11 Fifth point and last point on the outline, the solemn reminder. He says, now all these things happened unto them for in samples. They are written for our admonition. The reason why all of these things happened to Israel and the reason why God inspired the Apostle Paul to bring them to our minds today is so that we might learn how to live lives that glorify him. He says, upon whom the ends of the world are come. This simply means that we are living in the last epoch of world history. The next event on God's calendar is the return of Jesus Christ, which will usher in the end of this age and the beginning of the age to come. And in these last days, God wants us as, as Christ people to live with a marked separateness from the world and a distinct holiness for his honor and his glory. And he's given us his word. He's recorded these stories to teach us, to be examples for us. Some of you think that the last couple of sermons have been really hard. They've been about sins and sins that you commit. But trust me, this is the easy way to learn these lessons. Amen. Well, would you rather listen to a sermon about dying in the wilderness or would you rather die in the wilderness? Mm-hmm. Amen. Would you rather lose your health and your family and all your possessions so that you can learn what it means to be content in God? Or would you rather just read the book of Job? I'd rather just read the book of Job and let the Holy Spirit apply the word of God to my heart. May God give us great grace to heed these lessons, to apply them to our heart and life. I don't want you to die in the wilderness. I don't want any of you to die in the wilderness. I want you to live a life of faith and repentance to the glory of God and experience the fullness of the joy that the Lord has for you in His Son. May God help us to do that. Father, we thank You in Jesus' name for Your goodness. I thank You for this gem-packed text in 1 Corinthians, how naive I was to think I would get through this quickly. The more I began to study it, the more I saw how it's just so applicable to our lives. I pray that these sins, that You would help us. Oh God, free us from these sins. Deliver us from these sins. Save us from these sins. Revive us again and cause us to live lives that are glorifying and pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.